my earlier memories in life is being at a parade and hearing the marching band for my first time. The full front of the band was trombones and they were playing 76 trombones. And I was transfixed. That was the beginning of my love for music. As I grew a little bit, I joined the band and became friends with the band director's son who was immersed in a family that was immersed in music. And in 1972, I bought my first album. Some of you will not know what that is, but that's okay. An album is this round black thing that you put on it. Yeah. And that first album was Chicago 2. A couple of days later, I bought my third album. I won't tell you what my second was. It's not worth it. But the third album was Chicago Transit Authority, which is Chicago 1. And they began a 50-year love affair with this band. As many of you know, last night, Paige and I and our son Ian and his wife Sarah got to go hear them in concert. And as, as many, I've seen them five or six times, and this was the best they had ever sounded. Completely, by far, the best they had ever sounded. Two of the three original members are 77 and 79 years old. The vocalist who joined them in 2018, he's a pup. He's 66. And there have been many members of Chicago throughout the 55 years. They're the longest-running, continuously touring band ever. They've toured every year for 55 years. Now, I'm not here to tell you about Chicago, but when you're preaching and teaching, your sermon is always rumbling in your mind, no matter what's going on. And as I sat there thoroughly enjoying the concert, it dawned on me that that was an example of what I'm preaching on today in a worldly sense, because 55 years, only three members of the original seven members of the band still are with the band. They've had many members over the years, some of them really good additions, some of them neuter, and some of them, let's just say they were bad additions for a true Chicago fan. They were bad. But one thing remained the same. They were united around the same goal, to play the songbook of Chicago to play the songs that were written by the band Chicago. With all the diversity of giftings that were there, the diversity of people and personalities and musicality and abilities, all those differences, what remained solid, it was very evident last night when all the songs sounded like they were supposed to sound. In fact, some of them sounded better than they sounded 50 years ago. There was unity in their diversity. And that is a worldly picture of the body of Christ. There is unity in our diversity. None of us are the same. We're all gifted in different ways. God has created us in different ways. We have different personalities. And yet our songbook, if you will, our body of doctrine doesn't change. And we're surrounding ourselves around that doctrine just as the church has done since its inception. And so even though the giftings involved may change, but God behind the giftings never does. The word around which we rally never does. And so that's this picture that we are bringing together. We just sang about it in so many different verses that are rich with the scriptures just dripping out of them, reminding us what the Bible says about our unity. And so you might be asking, so, okay, why did you choose today to preach on unity other than just 
we're bringing in new members because we don't usually do that. Well, that's just a practical matter. One, we needed to hear a sermon on unity. It's time. It's been a while. And the scriptures talk about it all over the place. But also, after being out of the pulpit for three weeks and next week being Reformation Sunday, I didn't want to return to Isaiah for just one day. And since we were bringing in new members, it seemed like the right time to do that. So what I want to ask you today is what in your mind makes us unified? What does it look like? What are non-negotiables? What things have to be there for us to have biblical unity? How is it expressed in your own life? See, as everything we know, practice follows doctrine. Practice is tied to doctrine. Everybody has doctrine. Even if somebody says, oh, I don't want doctrine, just give me Jesus. I have to say, which Jesus? And then they tell me which Jesus they're thinking of. And I say, well, that's doctrine. Because it's all the word about God. It's all the word about Jesus. So our doctrine, what we believe the Bible says about unity, affects how we practice unity. And yes, we must always be practicing and working out unity. Always. It's a mark of who we are as the church because our unity will not be perfected until Christ returns and puts us into the new heaven and new earth. That's where it will be perfected. Until then, we're a work in progress around the same body of doctrine with the same commitments. So this morning, I want us to have our own ideas in our mind, lay them before the scriptures, and let the scriptures inform them. You know that in our hermeneutical principles, the dig and discover principles we use, that when we, when we have been involved in training our, our brothers in Kenya, one of those foundational script, uh, uh, hermeneutical principles is called, in that, in that hermeneutical example, is called text and framework. You remember that, text and framework. And our framework is our worldview. It's what we believe. It's what we're thinking. But the text always sits above our framework. Our framework never sits above the text. Our own opinions never sit above the text. The text sits above our own opinions. And so as always, we come before the word and we submit ourselves through the power of the spirit to the truth of his word. And if you need to rearrange some thoughts, rearrange those thoughts. Let the spirit do that this morning. If you need to rearrange some practices and how you uh, interact and, and live in the body, let the spirit do that for you this morning. And that itself is the is the keeping of the unity that Christ has already given us. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll look at several passages today, but mostly we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. This morning, we are going to look at the first part and the last part. I'll talk a little bit about the middle part, but we're really picking out principles of unity in everything that we look at. So we're going to get done with passages of Scripture today, and you're going to go, well, that's not all that passage says. And I'm going to say, I know, but our topic is unity. And so we need to pull those out and how they connect to the context of each passage. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 16 so we hear the whole thing, and you'll stand, if you will, as we read through Ephesians 4 and just follow along in your text. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience 
bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he descended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So we're going to look at this passage this morning with unity in mind, and then we'll look at two or three other passages without a a bunch of comment to them that are examples of what this passage brings to us. So the first, and what we want to see in all of this, the way we're looking at unity this morning, is Bible Church of Cabot will experience maturing unity when we understand and pursue three realities. Bible Church will experience maturing unity when we understand and pursue three realities. The first reality, unity is a gift to be maintained. Now, we're not going to start in verse 1 here. We're going to start um, as we look at the indicative, the reality of the seven ones that we just read about. Now, let me put this in context for you just a bit. Paul is shifting here in chapter 4. As you know, uh, oftentimes in his letters, he will give a section of the letter uh, predominantly given to uh, doctrinal doctrinal, uh, descriptions, and then the last part of the letter predominantly given to the application of that doctrine. And it's not completely like that all the time, but this is one of those letters that he has spent the first three chapters bringing us a picture of salvation from God's viewpoint, salvation from man's viewpoint, and showing what Christ did to to provide the unity in this one new man, he calls it, the church. And then when he gets to chapter 4, he has this therefore. And you see that right at the beginning. I therefore. And that's a big therefore. It encompasses all of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and all of chapter 3 as it begins to expound now what that means for us. And so oftentimes in our church, we talk about the indicative and the imperative. 
right? The indicative, the statements of what are, what God has already done, what reality is, and the imperatives that flow from that, the commands that flow from that. We have that here in this, in this chapter as well, in, in, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 6. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the indicative first, the reality, because we want to pin everything we're talking about today on what God has already done. And if we pin it on what God has already done, that means we know what he's already done, we understand it, and then it makes more sense of when he asks us to do this or do this or not to do this or not to do this. So first, the indicative, the reality of the seven ones. Look at verse 4. There is, circle that, there is, it exists, it's been provided for. Everything that follows is, it's current. So when we talk about unity, we're pursuing unity, but we're not building new unity. We're preserving the unity that Christ has already given. And we'll see that as we get further into the text. But there is... First of all, one body. One body. And this is where that metaphor is used of the body. There are several metaphors used to picture the church. Body is one of those. In fact, it's probably the main one in Scripture that is used to describe in different ways to describe the body of Christ. The body of Christ is at large. All of the people who are Christian in all of eternity, that is the body of Christ. But it also is describing the local gatherings of those bodies. So God redeems people and brings them into his children and adds them to the body of Christ, and then they gather in the local bodies of Christ. The New Testament is written mostly to the local bodies of Christ, assuming the reality of the, the, the larger body, the universal body of Christ. That's why when we bring in new members like today, we want to make sure that they're part of the, of the body of Christ, that they have been redeemed. They're giving evidence of their salvation because we are one body and we're a small part of that one large body gathered here in Cabot as the Bible church. So one body. Now, this idea of one is constant in the New Testament, a unified body in different ways. In John 17, this is what Jesus prayed for. So if Jesus prayed for it, is it going to happen? It will, right? Our sin can get in the way of what he prays for between now and the time he returns, but it will happen because he's prayed to it. He's prayed to the Father for it. John 17, verses we've looked at not too long ago, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, I do not ask for these only. In other words, he's prayed for the disciples, the specific 12 disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me, that's us, through their word. That's the word of God that they may all be one, just as, Father, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Listen, so that, when you see those little words in there, we need to take note of them, right? What's the result of this? What's the purpose of all of this? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So priority number one here. If Christ has provided unity for the church, we are a local expression of gathered believers who are part of the universal church. We are part of that unity. That unity, priority number one, is to be exercised so that the world, that, who, those who are not the church, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, the world may believe that God the Father has sent his Son into the world to die for those who would believe in him and give them eternal life. If we are not unified as a body, the world sees a blurred vision of our Lord. 
It's a reality that we must consider. The glory that you have given me, he continues, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me and love them even as you loved me. We see this in the book of Acts, the first in chapter 2 and chapter 4 with the early church. They're gathered together in unity in chapter 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. In other words, they were all devoted to the same thing. They were unified in what they desired and what they devoted themselves to. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in homes. They were together. They were unified. Chapter 4, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I can't preach all these texts, but no, we're not talking about a, a, a communal living here. What they did is they said, what's mine has been given to me by God. And if somebody else needs it, I'll present it to the apostles and they can give it to who they need because I don't hold on to my things because we are unified in our pursuits. In Romans chapter 12, speaking of the spiritual gifts, four places we see spiritual gifts all having the idea of unity. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, which we'll look at in just a moment briefly, um, and then 1 Peter 4, 12, 12, 4, 4. There you go. You remember all the passages that talk about spiritual gifts. Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. We'll cover that in a little bit. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, Paul writes, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That's the 10th verse of a letter that he's writing to a troubled church. And his command is, be united. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. And finally, in Philippians chapter 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind, the unified mind he's just commanded, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And we can read more passages about the oneness of the church. But when we say one body, we need to hammer this nail in. 
We are all members of the body of Christ at large. And when you commit to membership in a local church, specifically the Bible Church of Cabot, you are committing to act according to all the principles we're about to set forth from the scriptures. Because we're one. And as we'll see in a moment, the unity has already been provided. It is our sin that gets in the way. Well, we can hammer much more on the idea of one, but look back at your text in verse 4 of Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And then the description following that, just as you were called, a very important um, word in this passage of Scripture, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So what is our one hope? It's it's Christ. And in Ephesians, that can be demonstrated that it is Christ. You you don't need to turn back here, but in chapter 1, verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ. And and that's who he's writing to. We who, and he's writing about himself, we who are the first to hope in Christ. So his hope is in Christ. Later on in that that same passage of scripture, he prays for the Ephesians church at the end in chapter 8, verse 18 of chapter 1. And one of the things he prays for them is that they may know what is the hope to which he has called them. So for Paul, the one hope that we have is Christ. And so when we look at this, we're seeing there's one body, there's one Holy Spirit, and just as we were called to the one hope that is Christ that belongs to your call, he has called us to himself. But look what else we see in verse 5. One Lord, that is Jesus himself. uh, Descriptive. We don't even have to worry about whether the hope is Jesus or whether we can define it some other way. It's one Lord and one faith. So this is talking about the body of work that we believe in. This is our songbook going off the themes of the introduction. So this, the one faith, yes, we're all expressing faith in Christ, but that one faith is what we hold about Christ. It is the body of doctrine that we're unified in. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. At the very least, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit because at our salvation, the Spirit indwells us. Is it talking about a physical baptism? I'm not sure whether it is or not. The, 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 the mode of baptism isn't as important in Scripture as the person that we baptize. And some people who hold the different views of baptism can hold the views that distort the gospel. But here's what I do know. When we are saved, we're baptized by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the context here. The Spirit and the Son. And also, look at verse 6, one God and Father Listen to the completeness of all who is over all and through all and in all. Is there anything left out of that? God is the sovereign one. He's everywhere. He controls everything. He has all power. And we have this Trinitarian formula reminding us of the one. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the God and Father of us all. We have the Trinity brought to us fully expounding that we are unified in the work of Christ that God set forth and the Spirit carries out. And that is, right? There is. The beginning of verse 4. There is. Is Now, yes, we could spend much more time on d- taking each one of those apart, but if that's the indicative, if that's what has happened in this Trinitarian formula of what's been applied to us, and if you want to know what all that looks like, go back to chapter 1 
and read all of what God says he intended in Christ to happen for those who will believe. From our calling and and our election and our redemption and our inheritance and what the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father all intends for that. That is the body of doctrine that we are holding to that he is building off of when he says, therefore. So the indicative, the reality of the seven ones. But that flows into an imperative. Now, Paul brings it backwards. Paul gives the imperative and then the indicative, and we're looking at it backwards from what he brought. So the imperative is walk worthy. Look at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. So Paul, he is a prisoner, but he's also in prison, right? One of the four prison epistles. He is in prison. I urge you. So it's not, yeah, you might want to consider this. Right? He's not suggesting. He's putting some oomph into this. I urge you. If you are urging someone to do something, you're really not giving them much of an option, are you? They can go away and do what they want to do, but you're urging them of the dire condition they will be in if they ignore you. I urge you to walk. A very um, common theme throughout the New Testament, especially in Ephesians, the walk means our life. And you know that. It's a way to discuss our life from the uh, everything that we're about, that we think, that we say, that we do, all of our actions, everything we do every day, that is our walk. And he urges us to walk in a specific way, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, if the calling is being called in hope, in Jesus, like we just learned, then we are walking in a manner worthy of Jesus. And the, the priorities that are going to come are definitely characteristics that Jesus manifested as we start looking at them. So he's commanding us right from the beginning. This, the unity is a, the common theme in all the verses we just read. And when we read them straight through, you saw that. And we'll bring that out more. But I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's the indicative, right? God has called you if you're a believer. You have responded with the gift that he's given you of repentance of faith. And that calling leads to a certain kind of life. If it doesn't lead to that life... And if it's, if it's an unrepentance that, that follows in your life, if you're not walking that way, it gives every indication that maybe you haven't been called and you haven't been saved. Obedience follows the salvation that God gives us. This idea that we can be saved and then live like we want to live, it's a lie from the pit of hell. Because it will send you to hell if you want the salvation of Jesus And you want the security of that salvation, but you're not willing to demonstrate the changed heart that that salvation would do in you. So it's not even conjuring it up. It's now who you are. When you decide not to walk that way, it's your own sin and it needs crucified. It needs killed. And so these are serious verses for us who live in relative prosperity and relative ease. Even in the world that we live in, we're living in ease And it's so easy for us to justify our own sin. And we'll get into why that is so as he develops this. He urges us to walk in that way. How is that? He describes it, verse 2. With all humility is the first thing he says. Now, can we just park there for a minute? The lack of humility in the presence of arrogance and pride in the church today is a blight on Christ. The lack of humility, the arrogance, the infighting, 
the, the, the idea that everything that I think is right because I think it. It is everywhere today. Is it in you? Because if we're to walk in humility, by definition, we are not walking in pride. By definition, we are not walking in arrogance. We are crucifying those sins. Now, I'm here to tell you, every one of us in this room fights pride and arrogance or should fight pride and arrogance. It's in, it's in all of us, isn't it? When we decide to walk by the flesh instead of the spirit, pride guides that. If we're going to walk by the spirit, the spirit is what our guide. The spirit is controlling our actions. And so this, this, to walk in humility, yes, we can all say it's great to be humble. And I really don't want to feel humble because as soon as I feel humble, I'm not. And there's truth to that, right? So the way we, it's not I'm sending you out and saying, be humble. I'm sending you out and say, stop being arrogant. Stop being prideful. We are to walk humbly before our God. And every step you take, breath you take, word you say, every wink of sleep you get is before your God. And we're told to walk humbly before our God. So I'm here to tell you part of the struggle in our world today in Christianity online is the lack of humility. It's everywhere. But I'm not concerned about what's online. I'm concerned about us and our humility. You see, if you hold on to your own opinions so tightly that your framework sits above your text, you're never going to admit you're wrong. You're never going to feel the friendly, loving rebuke of someone who wants to save you from the cliff. You're never going to change a viewpoint. I mean, I know people who have never changed a theological viewpoint in their life. They learn new ones, but they don't ever change because they're always fighting to keep their own opinion instead of listening to truth. How many times have you changed some doctrine in your life? I hope you have. I hope as you've grown, you've seen, wow, I messed that up. I'll use an example. If you want to fill in the gaps here in Ephesians, you can go back and listen to sermons that I preached in Ephesians, and you can get the fullness of some of the things we're going to kind of gloss over a little bit. But in the, I went and listened to the one I preached, to the two that I preached on these texts, and in that sermon, I'm confessing that I've changed my views on something in the text, that I used to think one thing, and now I think another. And I'm okay with that. I, I'm, not, I'm not prideful in that. If God teaches me truth in a better way, I just want to be pleasing to God. And if that means confessing where I messed up, that is the walk of a believer, is it not? We repent. So I, I could give you 50 ways I've been praying that the Holy Spirit would sit on you right now and reveal to you your haughtiness, your arrogance, your pridefulness, and where it's not being crucified. Because if you don't start there, the rest of this will never happen. You are not going to do everything that's before us this morning. If we even get that far, you're not going to be able to do it if your pride overwhelms you. Your sustenance is Christ and Christ alone. It is not in your own self. Well, the lack of humility is going to get in the way of everything we're about to talk about. So deal with that now. Just you and the Lord. Ask him to help you crucify your pride and your arrogance and not let that overwhelm you. Well, verse 2 continues, with all humility and gentleness. Now, how are you going to be gentle if you can't be humble? To be gentle with other people. Let's just wrap all these together. With patience. That long-suffering. 
Not demanding. Not, you, not when you speak the truth and love to someone and they go away and they don't do what you've just had to do. Be patient with them. It doesn't mean you won't speak to them again. It doesn't mean you won't speak strongly, but you're speaking gentle. You're speaking with patience. This misconception that to be gentle and patient and humble means you can never speak the truth. You always just have to affirm what's before you and never deal with truth. And you can never say hard things. That is not so. You have to say hard things in love. And that includes being humble and gentle. And that humility and gentleness is with a few things. With patience. It will help you do that, right? If you're patient, you're long-suffering with someone. It doesn't mean you let them go in their sin without talking to them about it. But it does mean you don't cut them off. It does mean you don't cut them off from the truth of the scripture and the power of your discipleship. Bearing with one another in love. The overarching principle we see throughout this is love. The father loved the son. The son loves his people and we love each other. And the spirit guides us and helps us when we walk by the Spirit to do all things according to Christ. So we are to bear with one another. It's a different way, even more so a different way of saying patience, to bear with one another in love. Now look at the crux of this in verse 3. Our walk is also with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, let's just stop there, eager, that means you're putting effort into it. That's behind the word. It's a word that describes putting effort to do something. I'm, I'm eager to do it, so I'm working toward it. I'm not, just in, I'm not just verbalizing, well, yeah, I'm eager to do that. I'm actually pursuing it. I'm putting effort toward it. And what I'm eager is to maintain something. Now, if I'm maintaining something, it has to already be there, right? I can't maintain a million dollars if I don't have a million dollars. I'd be glad to. If anybody wants to give me a million, I'll maintain it. But I can't maintain something I don't have. This is where the indicatives help us, right? It's already been done. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father in us all, one baptism, one hope of our calling. It's already been done. So we are maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So the spirit is unifying us, doing the work that Christ prayed for, Right? John 17, the Spirit is unifying us, and we are eager to maintain that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So our bond together is peaceful because we're pursuing all the things the Bible says about unity. So we have an indicative to, uh, to the reality of the seven ones, but we also have an imperative to walk worthy. And we've covered this briefly in here, but it's going to continue for us in the second part of this chapter as well as a couple of other, other places. So I want you to jump down right now with me in the same chapter to verse 11. Between, in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, there's a passage that, that has much to say about it. Go listen to the sermon on that. It's not, it's not part of what we need for unity this morning. What we need for unity is to see that what we're about to talk about are gifts that Christ has given. Gifts that Christ has given. Because verse 7 says, but grace was given to each one of us. So there's all these ones. We're one body. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So it's been given to us, and it's according to the measure of Christ. So these gifts are given to the body, to the church. Verse 11 begins telling us what those gifts are. So unity is a gift to be maintained, but it's also, secondly, it is the result of a healthy body life. 
the result of a healthy body life. First, when leaders equip and build up, the body is healthy. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So here's where I changed my mind when I preached this five, six years ago. I don't think these are offices. I think these are gifts given to the church as in gifts given to you and I. And I think they're not offices that we set aside apostles and prophets. I think they're giftings that are given to people in the churches today. So the apostles today for us, the sent out ones, they're our missionaries. We call them missionaries, but if we were going to put a biblical title to it, it could be apostles. They are the ones that are sent out. They pick up and they go. And when the gospel is there and they've trained leaders or left their missionary assistants someplace to train leaders, like Paul did with Timothy and Titus, then they go to another place. They're the sent out ones. I'm not advocating changing our name from missionary to apostle because there's a lot of heretics that use the word apostle that don't mean anything what the Bible says, right? So the prophets, those who have the gift of being a prophetic voice, we see that in our world today, don't we? We see people who are able to teach the scriptures and bring the scriptures to bear in such a way that they are prophetic in their voice. Every pastor in their pulpit should be a prophet in the prophetic call of obey God as the scriptures say and do not get conformed to the world. And we see certain men. Now, I'm not talking about somebody who can just grumble well, who can just ruffle their feathers and raise their voice and cause a lot of trouble and the heresy hunters and all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who stand with the word of God and powerfully say it and God shoves them forth in the body and says, listen to my word. God shoves them forth in the large body, in the universal body of Christ, and they speak for the Lord in opposition to all the craziness that's going on. So we have people who, and there's much discussion on prophecy. I don't want to get into that here. Because what we're looking at is a group of gifts to the church, and those gifts are going to function in a certain way. So we can have lots of discussion about apostles and prophets. I grant you that. But even if you want to set those aside, we then go, in verse 11, to the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So the evangelists, like Philip, was marked out as an evangelist. And the reason I think, just one more thing on the apostles, the reason I think that it's apostles that that are like sent out ones like missionaries, because we only had 12. One of them betrayed the Lord. Matthias was elected to replace him. And then we have Paul. Those are the ones who fit the biblical qualifications for capital A apostles. There are a few others like Barnabas who are small A apostles that, that we have in the scripture. So we have to deal with that. There were people that were not capital A apostles. They were small A apostles. And that's what we're dealing with here. So evangelists, there are people who are gifted in evangelism. Are you all supposed to evangelize? Shake your head, yes. Yes, we're all to evangelize. Go, therefore, right? We're all to do that. Some people are uniquely gifted. Some people, God has given them a passion and an ability to engage people with the gospel. We have those in our body. You should seek them out and go out with them because most of us are wimpy in our evangelism. Most of us are fearful in our evangelism. Hang out with some of the people who are evangelists and see how easily the gospel flows off their tongue. See how easily conversation starts with lost people that it doesn't matter what we talk about, but in a heartbeat, I'm getting to Jesus and where they stand with him. We also have in here the shepherds or the pastors, your version may have, and teachers. I don't think they're one office here. I think they're pastors and teachers. 
Um, some, so there's an office of pastor-teacher that has risen out of this, this verse. I, I don't think it fits the grammatical rule that is used to say that this is, I'm not getting into all the Greek with it, I just don't think it fits the rule because they're plural nouns. So I think there are pastors, elders, overseers, all three the same office in the New Testament. You know that. We've preached on this a lot. We function this way. But there are also teachers. People are gifted in teaching. All elders or pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are elders or pastors. Does that make sense? You can be a teacher and not be an elder pastor. And I'm not dividing those. That's the same office. That's the office that you have recognized in me, elder, pastor, overseer. But you might be a teacher and not that. But you cannot be an elder or pastor and not be able to teach because it's a requirement. So these are all gifts to the church, all right? I'm already spending more time here than I want to. Gifts to the church, and they function in a certain way. And when leaders equip and build up, we are pursuing maturity. Look at verse 13. Verse 12. What are they given for? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And can I just say, if you've got the King James Version that has a comma in here, blot it out. It doesn't belong. To equip the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma. Because what that says, this is what the doctrine of the priesthood was built on. It's not the body of Christ who does the work of ministry. It's the priest because it's the pastors, the priests, the church leaders. It's not the laity as they used to be, as you used to be called. And they've used this verse sometimes to equip the saints, second task of these leaders, the work of ministry. That's not what it says. It says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So part of our job as elders is to equip the body for the work of ministry. It doesn't mean we're, we're excused from the work of ministry, but it means that the primary issue that we have is equipping the body and protecting the flock, being the shepherds, ministering the word, all the other things that it says. But it's not my job to go do all the ministry. It's your job. And it's, it's my job and the other elders' job to help equip you for that. And it's clear right there to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And this, look at the second phrase, for building up the body of Christ. So when we equip you for the work of ministry, we're building up the body of Christ. And remember, we're in a growth motif, right? All based on unity. That's the whole context of this section of Scripture. So when leaders equip and build up, Secondly, when the body grows into the unity of the faith and the maturity of the fullness of Christ, look at verse 13, what are we to do? To equip. What is the body to do? Be equipped for the work of ministry. What does all of that do together? It builds up the body of Christ, the one body of Christ, specifically here, the local body of Christ. And then it says until. So how long do we do this? Do we only have to do this until the week from Tuesday? Maybe next, you know, January 1st, we don't have to do this anymore. We'll be done with this, done with being equipped, done with doing stuff. Until we all, every one of us, every one of us sitting here, every one of us that God will bring in, every new convert, every new believer. You see, if we're healthy and we're evangelizing, bringing in new believers, we're constantly on the road to maturing believers. Amen? It's constantly being done. Until we all attain to what? To the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, that's number one, to mature manhood, that's number two, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. All those three prepositional phrases, we have to do this, function in unity by growing and submitting to leaders and for leaders to lead and equip. We have to do this until these three things happen. The unity, the oneness, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So those are not separated, right? 
Our unity is based around the knowledge of the Son of God, and we're in agreement on those primary doctrines. It doesn't mean we have to agree on everything in the Bible, but it does mean when we don't agree, we're not going to break unity. One of the things I tell people all the time, listen, we don't have an eschatological official position in our church. If we did, we'd be in trouble. Maybe I can't even be here. Maybe you can't even be here. If we had an official position, but, but what we, and we have all positions, all the isms are represented in our body. They're shifting all the time, and I'm glad for that. They're shifting all the time, but all the isms are, are represented here. But what we will not have is division over those. Because the Bible is not 100% clear. I can poke holes in every version of eschatological belief, even my own. So we don't want to divide over that. So we have a unity of the faith of our body of knowledge and the knowledge of the Son of God. Secondly, to mature manhood. Now mark that because that's important here when we get to the next verse. Manhood is important. It's not just saying it's only men and not women. It's talking about a body and its maturity. We're not going to be children. We're heading toward maturity of manhood, full maturity, and also to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Christ is our measure, and we're we're preserving the unity by building each other up in the faith until we reach the maturity that we have that's based on the fullness of the measure of Christ. When's that going to happen? When he comes and takes us home, right? So this is an ongoing thing. It, it's, it's describing what this age looks like for believers. So when leaders equip and build up, when the body grows into the unity of the faith and the maturity of the fullness of Christ, the unity, thirdly, the unity of corporate maturing faith negates and the unity of corporate maturing faith accomplishes. It will do two things. Look at verse 14 to see what it, it negates. It negates um, childishness, instability, and gullibility. All right there in verse, theme, verse 14. So that, so all this is happening. We're constantly doing this. We're growing in unity so that we may no longer be children. We're working toward mature manhood, but we're, we don't want to stay being children. And that happens with every new believer who comes into our body. They start out as new in the faith. And we have a new opportunity to disciple and train up someone new. And so it's a perpetual. And what does that require? It requires those of you sitting in the pews right now to be growing. you got to have something to say. you you, you got to have an experience where the Lord is working in your life and you're crucifying sin and trusting in his grace and moving forward in obedience so you have something to say. So that we may no longer be children. What's a child look like? Well, they're, they're unstable tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's the same kind of phraseology James used in chapter 1 to talk about someone who lacks wisdom. We don't want to lack wisdom because James tells us if we need wisdom, we ask God who provides to all of us liberally. So if we're not doing that as part of our growth, then what we are walking into is the instability of a childlike faith. But look what else it says. Carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's the world. That's Satan. That's the work of the world against Christ and his people. And if we're not constantly growing, bound up in our faith, growing in our knowledge of Christ and the application of his word, then we are susceptible to the gullibility that Colossians speaks against. 
The schemes of the wicked one, the schemes of the world, we're not to be caught up in that. Why? Because we are not on the milk still, as Paul, as the writer of Hebrews would say. As he, remember, we looked at that in Hebrews, that I have much more to say to you talking about the, 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 the priesthood of Christ and, and in line with Melchizedek. I have much more to say to you, but you're not going to understand it because you're still on the milk. You need to be moving on to the meat. That keeps us safe. And we do this in community. What happens when you do it by yourself? When you do it by yourself and you grab on that something's wrong and no one is there to tell you, hey, we need to check that out together, and then you build doctrine on what is wrong, you are falling into the traps of this verse. That's why it's community. Unity is in community. I wish I had to parse that out some. That preaches. You know that, right? With unity right in the middle of community. I didn't think of that till just now. So th- this happens in community. And you know, we, I preach this all the time. I don't want anybody here to be an island, to be a, a lone believer. Like you can worship God on the golf course or, or at the museum or in the campground or at the baseball game or whatever, that you can worship God there. And it's the same as worshiping in here with God's people. The Spirit's moving here. When we gather, you are separated from the moving of the Spirit when you are not here. The Spirit moves in your groups when you gather together and you give each other the word and you pray for each other and you, and you help each other in your walk. The Spirit is present and powerful there. There is no island here because when you're an island, you cut yourself off from the constant flow of the growth of the body in community. Well, those are the things that It negates, but it also accomplishes things. Verse 15. Rather, so not that, but this. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Now, the main verb here is rather we are to grow. We are to grow up, right? That's what he's saying. Not to stay in it, in it, in in this, like children, unstable and gullible. Rather, we are to grow up. And he's going to describe what this looks like. And the first description of it, he says, rather, speaking the truth in love. So there's the manner that this growing happens. Now, this is hard sometimes, isn't it? To speak the truth and to speak it in love. Because sometimes you don't want to love at all. You need to hammer the truth. Person's not listening to the truth and you know they're headed for destruction. And you leave out the love. And that violates this command. Other times, you just want to, we just need to love and get along. Doctrine divides. Well, on what basis do we get along if we don't agree on who Jesus is and what he said and how we're to live? We can't. There is no unity where doctrine does not give us the unity. We can't just say, well, I like these people. I don't care how they live. That's where my unity is going to be. Unity in the body of Christ looks like this. It is growing It is live. People are not left behind. People are not left in their sin. They are gone after. We speak the truth. Truth is going to undergird every passage we're going to read here in a moment. And no, I'm not going to preach all those passages. By then, they will sit on their own. We have to speak the truth in love because we don't want anybody to fall away. We've talked about some of these characteristics But all of them, as we build, is all how we're living with each other. We're going to be talking about some other things in a minute. These are the foundations that we have in place before we realize all of these other commands. So, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way 
into him who is the head into Christ in every way. Nothing left out. Your, your pet peeve sin doesn't get to be kept. You're going to grow in every way into Christ. And he doesn't keep your sin. He paid for your sin so that you can crucify it. And we're to grow up in every way. In every way we're to grow up into our head, the head of the body, right? The same metaphor is here, and that is Christ. So the manner is to speak the truth in love. The source is Christ himself. The means is a properly working body. Look at verse 16. So we're growing up into our head, into Christ, from whom, so Christ here, right? This is the nail in the coffin of the source, from whom the whole body, that is us, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Okay, so you're a joint, you're a joint, you're a joint, you're a joint, right? Other, other descriptions of the body say you might be a finger or a thumb or a knee or I'm making up the parts, but different body parts. We can't function without everybody. We can't function at our, at our prime efficiency and glory to God if not everybody is functioning in this same way. So we all have to work together properly the way we're intended. That's why we're each is given a measure of a gift. And you're to use those gifts to the edification of the body and the glory of God according to 1 Peter 4. So we are equipped as a body with all of our joints, all of our people, all of our members, when each part is working properly. And the first level of working properly is this, in this context is what? A walk that's worthy, a walk that matches Christ. That's functioning properly because when that happens, that we're going to interact with each other properly. And that makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Unity is already provided, and we are building ourselves up in react, interacting with each other in love, and that building up is what maintains that. So this healthy body, this is this healthy body that's, that's being described here. This is what the goals are. Look back in verse thirteen. We do this until we all attain to the unity, the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, this isn't just discipleship. This is our unity. This is what happens in our unity. We disciple each other because unity has been provided by Christ and we are eagerly pursuing maintaining the, the, bond, of the a bond of peace in the spirit. That's what we are eagerly doing and this is how we do it. So what does that look like? Keep going in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. So that's the world, and that's who you and I used to be. And he's saying, he's turning us away from that. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learn Christ. So all that we've learned about Christ and how we're united around him is carried into this. You did not learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him, and he he is saying, I know that you have. I am assuming that you have. And we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. 
to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, that's the earlier verses, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to, be, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And that ties us right back to chapter 1, that we were called to be holy. We were called in holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, now here come the commands, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Well, for one body and members of one another, do you want people to speak truth to you or do you want them to lie to you? You want truth, and so we do the same for each other. For we are members of one another. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. So when you're angry, you're, that anger is producing things in you. And it's going to be described in just a moment. That anger is producing things in you. You are not being humble. You are not being long-suffering. You are holding on to an offense with someone and you are being angry. And the Bible says, if you're angry, do not sin. How many times are you angry and it's not sin for you? Not very often. Is there a righteous anger? Yes, there is. There is a righteous anger. But he's saying, if you're angry, do not sin. And if you are, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And as I've said before, that doesn't mean that you watch the sun until it goes down under the horizon and say, okay, now I'll give it up. It's saying, do it now. Get rid of your anger because it will lead to bad places. Let me find my spot here. And if you don't do that, you will be giving opportunity to the devil, the deceitful scheming, the schemes that the childlike faith is susceptible to, is gullible to. Anger leads you to that. Do you know that anger leads people into more sin more often than not? I mean, I'm not just talking about, well, the Bible says it's sinful to be angry. It leads you to do more sin because then you start interacting with other people out of your anger and you sin even further and you start to justify your own sin. Well, I have a right to be angry because that person did. It'll lead you into more sin. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need, like the church in Acts that we read about already. Don't be lazy. Second person, Second Thessalonians deal with that idea in great depth. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, this takes the idea of gossip and blows it all the way out of the water, doesn't it? You're only to talk to people with things that will build them up. And yes, speaking the truth in love is the way that the body builds itself up into the head. We just learned that, right? So we're not free from that. But man, when you start messing around with people in your speech, when you start gossiping with other people, that brings the wrath of God. And if you live like that and think, well, I'd say it to their face. I've had people in our body tell me that. Not, they don't go here anymore. But I would say it to their face so it's not gossip. I'm like, that's a lie. It is gossip. You're speaking about someone else without them here, and you are infecting another believer's viewpoint of the person you're speaking to. That is not edifying. And it, it oftentimes is the result of anger and jealousy. 
verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Back to chapter 1. Let all bitterness, now this is what happens when you hold on to anger. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, you tell me, if you were living like this, crucifying those things, pursuing Christ, forgiving other people, walking worthy of Christ, and this is a description of what Christ did, how often can you be angry with them? How often can you be divided with them? How easy is it to pray for them? How easy is it to have a relationship that recognizes your own sin in the midst of that relationship? This is our walk. Okay, I need to finish. Colossians 3 and we'll stop. Colossians 3, we're going to start reading in verse 12. But at the beginning, he gives this whole description in Colossians chapter 3 about seeking the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. Set our hearts and minds on the things that are above, about Jesus and where he is seated, not on the earth. And that allows us to put away all of the same kinds of activities that Ephesians tells us and put on all the kinds of activities that Ephesians tells us. So when he gets to verse 12, he writes this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, that's the work that's already done by God if you're a believer, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Our unity is shattered if we choose not to forgive each other. Do you know that? Now, you know the Bible talks about forgiveness in two ways, right? It talks about forgiveness as we give it to God and say, I'm not going to hold it against that person. We're required to do that 70 times 7, right? We're required to do that over and over and over. The restoration of the relationship might take some time as you crucify sin and the person that's offended crucifies sin and trust is built back up. That, that given forgiveness may take a little while. It doesn't have to, but because of the way God has wired us and, and the damage that words and actions can do, sometimes it takes a while to do. But we're charged to automatically realize that Christ has forgiven us and we have to forgive other people even if we're not ready to grant all access back to our relationship. So that is what's being talked about. Verse 14, and above all these put on love which binds everything together in what? Perfect harmony. Perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do 
everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I'm just here to tell you, if you put these verses in your heart and mind and ask God to always remind you when you're traversing them, we will begin to grow even more as a body of Christ. And that's what we're tasked to do, to grow into our head. What stops us from growing is not living according to this. And we could look at a dozen more scriptures today that teach the same thing because God thinks we're knuckleheads because we are and we need to hear it. And many churches Paul wrote to needed to hear it. And that's why we find it over and over and over again. And in Psalm 133, which we're not going to get to today, it's pictured as a beautiful and joyful thing when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, like putting oil on Aaron's head and letting it drip down his beard onto his robes. What a great picture as Aaron, who is set apart by God and he's being consecrated to go in and do the work of of the high priest where he represents the people before God and God before the people. That's a joyful day. Their sins are about to be dealt with in the way that God had set forth. And it's a beautiful thing that that as we dwell in unity, it is just like that. God is pleased, we are blessed, and I guarantee you there are ways that we will start growing that you haven't seen here. It is my heart's desire to see us live with each other like this. It's my heart's desire to see my counseling load be diminished because we're living with each other like this. It's my heart's desire to see your family strengthened because we live with each other like this and we're training up the next generation so that the churches that they're members of as pastors are blessed because they know how to live and love with truth in a body of Christ. May it be so for us. Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We are grateful, Father, that you have given us so many pictures of what it means to be unified. You have redeemed us, brought us into your family, and you have made us one. You have made us one, one body. We serve one God. We have one Bible. We are led by one Holy Spirit. And so it is our prayer, Father, that you would work in us even more deeply the idea of pursuing, eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace so that we might bring you glory, that we might bring more joy into our body, that we might see generational change in our children and our children's children, and that we would experience the blessing, how good and pleasant it is. So we, Father, ask you to do your work in us, that we might be a people who love you more deeply, obey you more faithfully, and receive even more of your blessing as you grow us into our head, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we ask.